In his book, Love Canal, A Toxic History from Colonial Times to the Present, author Richard Newman begins chapter two with a quote from Greek philosopher Socrates. Come then, let's create a city in theory from its beginnings. The quote seems appropriate for the whole story that we're about to tell starts with just one man, William T. Love, and his ambitions to build, from its very foundations, a utopian community which he called, appropriately enough, Model City. Love wasn't alone in his vision. Throughout the 19th century, others around the country had attempted to organize communities based on shared societal or religious ideals. In 1848, a religious-based communalist society was formed in Oneida, New York, about 200 miles east of Buffalo. Around the turn of the century, more secular projects emerged like Echota, a planned community in Niagara Falls. Its name, Echota, is a Cherokee word meaning place of refuge, and that's what it was meant to be. Designed by famed architect Stanford White, it was to be a refuge for workers of the city's newly built Edward Dean Adams power station, which was unlocking seemingly limitless hydroelectric power from Niagara Falls itself. The community offered the workers affordable and attractive housing, each with the modern amenity of electricity. Love's vision for his model city was similar in spirit. He too envisioned hydroelectric power as the bedrock of his idealistic and perhaps naive concept. The idea on paper was simple. He intended to build a canal through the city of Niagara Falls. When completed, it would run roughly seven miles and connect the upper Niagara River, which flows from Lake Erie, to the lower Niagara River, which feeds into Lake Ontario. Love's Canal would allow travel between the two Great Lakes without having to go over that whole giant waterfall thing. It would also divert water from the swiftly flowing river to produce electricity, thus powering the future factories and homes that were lying the area. The canal would produce DC, or direct current, the type favored by famed inventor Thomas Edison. It would steer water away from the upper Niagara River and direct it north where it would fall 210 feet to a power generating station. Later, the water would fall another 80 feet to another electrical station before returning to the lower Niagara. At the northern terminus of the canal, where the water would return to the river near the town of Lewiston, Love proposed to build his model city. It would be clean, far different from other cities at the time. Wide boulevards lined with homes would be free from trash. There'd be no saloons, no taverns, just a family-friendly community. But 
that was just the beginning. Love, being the starry-eyed optimist that he was, predicted that in the decades to come, his city would transform into a megalopolis, effectively connecting Buffalo to the city of Niagara Falls, two cities about 30 miles apart. The promise of inexpensive or even free electricity for homes and factories would provide boundless opportunity for industry and draw both entrepreneurs and families to the area like a magnet. It would become the greatest manufacturing center in the world and, as he called it, the most perfect city in existence. The first mention of love that I could find in any newspaper was in January of 1893 when the Buffalo Commercial announced, A man named William T. Love is trying to get options on many acres of land about Lewiston. Love is a cooperative town man. He had spent the previous few years surveying the area and identifying the ideal location. By the middle of 1894, Love claimed that the company, which he had named the Niagara Power and Development Company, had acquired over 16,000 acres. The outfit was incorporated by a special act of the legislature and granted one of the most liberal charters of any company in the state. Love had a bit of a checkered past. His list of accomplishments was really nothing to write home about, more of a list of embellishments and failures than anything else. Now, to say that he was a con man might be a bit of a stretch, but all hat, no cattle might be more fitting. An empty suit with delusions of entrepreneurial grandeur. On May 23, 1894, Love and others gathered for a groundbreaking ceremony in the village of LaSalle, the canal's southern terminus. The area had been named in honor of the famed French explorer René Robert Cavalier, Sieur de La Salle, who navigated the Great Lakes during the 1660s and 70s. In 1679, La Salle's men built a 45-ton ship near the site. The ship, known as the Griffin, was the first European-style sailing vessel to make its way upon the upper Great Lakes. It didn't make its way for long, however. It mysteriously disappeared on northern Lake Michigan that same year, on the return trip of its maiden voyage. The photo of the groundbreaking shows a number of finely dressed Victorian men, women, and children. An elderly man bearing a long white beard holds a spadeful of dirt while looking imposingly into the camera. That's John Fleming, president of the village of LaSalle. He's surrounded by workers, investors, and other prominent citizens. And to his right, William T. Love, the visionary himself. While John Fleming's spadeful of LaSalle soil certainly kickstarted the project, it was two large steam shovels purchased by Love that began to carve his place in history. As his metal giants excavated, Love engaged the public, selling them on the project and touring them through the construction site. Trains filled with people came to see the canal being unearthed. Love was equal parts visionary and salesman, though his skills at the latter would ultimately prove lacking. Attracting future residents was the key to Model City's success. But how do you sell people on a city that doesn't exist save for a few homes and businesses? Well, Love had some ideas for this. 
promising long-term financial gain for one, but his main pitch to investors involved dangling before them the design and modernity of the city-to-be. The community would be a balance between beauty and industry, allowing workers to escape the polluted confines of their former cities. In fact, one-eighth of the city would be dedicated to public parks in which families could picnic and spend their leisure time. The region itself offered natural beauty, a diverse climate for farmers, access to railroads, and abundant natural resources. And the land, well, it was to be offered for free to businesses who were willing to relocate, to uproot their former lives and stake their claim in Model City. The housing in which workers and their families would reside was inexpensive and well-equipped with electric, gas, telephone, water, and sewage services. Though development was slow and often delayed, Love would brag to investors about the small but growing population that had already relocated, upwards of 1,000 people. In fact, by early 1885, Model City already had a barber shop, a paint and blacksmith shop, a large livery barn, and four large stone structures to house factories. Even its new telephone and telegraph company were ready to go. Still, there was a prevailing skepticism that emerged among the public due to the grandiosity of Love's unfettered idealism. From day one, cash flow proved problematic. Investors in Model City were coming in, but it was more of a trickle than the deluge for which he had hoped. Love began to fall behind in his payments to his workers, his lenders, and the residents from whom he had optioned the land. Exacerbating this financial strain was the overall economy. In the roughly 20 years preceding Love's undertaking, the U.S. had experienced bank panics in 1873, 1884, 1890, and most notably in 1893. These panics crumpled consumer confidence, causing people to be more mindful of their pocketbooks. The Panic of 1893 was especially hard-hitting, resulting in a recession that lasted until 1897. It remains one of our nation's most severe economic crises. As the influx of local money and people slowed, love looked to other cities, Chicago, New York, and beyond for cash infusions. He even traveled across the Atlantic to pitch the moneyed men of London. Newspapers around this time began to question whether Model City would ever come to pass and took note of Love's ever-increasing time away from the project. In addition to his financial woes, Love faced near-constant criticism from environmentalists. Since the 1880s, forward-thinking citizens had made concerted efforts to stop the privatization and industrialization of the falls. In 1885, the Free Niagara Movement led to the creation of the Niagara Reservation, the first state park in the nation. Still, despite fears that Love's model city would potentially divert too much water from the falls and create a permanent scar on the landscape, there was little people could do to stop the determined developer. On May 10, 1896, perhaps out of renewed dedication or more likely out of desperation, Love published a half-page ad in the Buffalo Courier. It's by far the most aggressive appeal for investors, workers, and residents that I was able to find. The ad's headline read, A Promoter's Deal, and went on to guarantee 10% interest to anyone looking to move to Model City. 
It also promised a return of 4% per year on your land. Love assured that within 90 days, Model City would boast a population of more than 10,000 people. The city itself would employ 1,000 workers to work on its railways, canals, sewers, and other infrastructure projects. Despite his best marketing efforts, Love's Model City was failing. By August of 1896, the project had lost steam, quite literally. The giant steam-powered shovels, which had once been a symbol of progress, had come to a screeching halt due to non-payment. Hard luck seems to be on the heels of Mr. William T. Love's Model City at Lewiston, the Buffalo Evening News reported. Yesterday, the sheriff levied on a large amount of its property, and the city about which so much has been printed and written appears to be joining the procession of might-have-beens. PR, coming from the Niagara Power and Development Company, attempted to reassure their wary investors. The company just needs to reorganize, officials claimed, and they had a plan by which to do just that. All they needed was one month to restructure, after which their financial obligations would be met and digging would resume. Within short order, the company did make moves. Notably, William T. Love, the founder himself, was forced from his own project. By November of 1896, Love had moved from his home in Model City and taken up residence on West Avenue in the nearby city of Lockport. When asked about his future plans, he explained that he hoped to enter the real estate business. By the following year, he was gone from Western New York gone from the country, in fact. Love's entrepreneurial spirit had carried him all the way to the gold fields of Manitoba, Canada, looking for investments. Despite his failures at Model City, it seems that residents of the area were sympathetic toward Love and felt that, if not for the difficult times which had befell the nation, he would have seen things through. Adding some insult to injury was the fact that at midnight on November 16, 1896, the first electrical current was sent from Niagara Falls to Buffalo via alternating rather than direct current. This technology, developed by physicist Nikola Tesla, could be sent over great distances, thus negating the need for cities to be located in close proximity to water. Model City was obsolete before it even began. Love may have been gone, but he left a hole in his wake. His Grand Canal was a gash in the earth 10 feet deep, 60 feet wide, and 3,200 feet long. Eventually, it filled with water from rain and nearby streams. During the summer, children would use it as a swimming hole. In the winter, a pond on which to skate. A Buffalo contractor, William Haven, purchased the rights to the clay which had been excavated and discarded from the site. With it, he planned to make bricks for the upcoming Pan American Exposition, at that time to be located on Cayuga Island just minutes away. The serene landscape wouldn't last, however. As decades passed, the city of Niagara Falls would find other, less agreeable uses for the site. In the early 1940s, the city sold it to an electrochemical manufacturing company known as Hooker Chemical, and for the next decade, the company would use the site 
as a repository for more than 20,000 tons of toxic waste. William T. Love's model city would never come to pass, and his name, to many, was forgotten. But of Love's Canal and its buried past, the world would soon be reminded. Today's episode was researched, written, and produced by me, Anthony Greco. Thanks for listening, and be sure to share our podcast with your friends and family. The Buffalo History Museum receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by MT Bank and from our donors, members, and friends. <laughs>